Well, we want to uh, continue in Nehemiah this morning. So if you'll open your Bibles to chapter 2 of the book of Nehemiah, as we have been studying through thus far, we've studied through the book of Ezra, now we find ourselves in Nehemiah, and we will continue on. And this morning, I'm going to take chapter 2 in its entirety, and I'm going to teach it and focus on what I believe is really the crux of the chapter And I want to use this text this morning as an opportunity for us to just invigorate a bit of our confidence and our boldness that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, but also in who he has made us to be. The call of of the Christian life is is one of co-laboring. When we're brought into and, and rescued and transferred is the words of Paul into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. It isn't just a call to spectatorship, but it's, it's a call to engagement. And the life of a believer, as you guys know, is a life of co-laboring with the Lord Jesus Christ in building or advancing. He builds, but we labor alongside with him out of obedience and in faithfulness to advance the kingdom of God as he sovereignly moves upon the earth. And so there's, there's this, not this passiveness that is within the New Testament or within all of Scripture for that matter, but rather it's an engagement by the people of God to labor alongside of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Scripture that, is, that is, comes to mind that's so well known is the words of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 9 when he says that the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. And there's this picture and he says, Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers into the harvest. We are those laborers, church. Do you see yourself as a laborer? I hope you do, because that's the call of the Christian life. And I want to just dig into this laboring this morning and and what it is and what it's based on. The, The life of a Christian is an active engagement rather than a passive spectatorship. The kingdom of God and and his church, both of those mechanisms, if you will, they're dynamic within God's plan. They're not static, they're dynamic, they're they're moving, they're living, and they're, they're actively advancing within the world. And as it advances, there's another dynamic and and yet less less powerful is this idea that we as believers are subject to a powerful king, that we serve a powerful king, and that he is alive and he is the one whom we follow. But what we find so often is that within this advancement of the kingdom of God, Opposition arises, and this is a theme that we have been presented with multiple times now, that it, up to this point in our studies of Ezra and Nehemiah, we've encountered it, if you will, no pun intended. Opposition, and, and the reality is, is that where work is to be done, there's opposition to be had. That's essentially just the economy of God, if you will. And there's an encouraging word for you this morning on Mother's Day. And all the mothers are going, yeah, I know. Where there's work to be done, there's opposition to be had. I'm going to put it on the gravestone. 
<laughs> but it's the truth. It's the truth within the, within the economy of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of, of this age are engaged in conflict. But I want to take just a moment before we dig into the chapter, and I, I want to just remind us again by way of kind of pulling the covers back on, on, on Satan, on the schemes of the enemy. Because, and I think I've said this before, but there is, there's nothing new under the sun in the enemy's schemes. They're obvious and they're repetitive. And it's helpful for us to remember, and by way, again, of just beginning with an encouragement in our own hearts, is we serve the one who is victorious. We serve the one who has defeated the enemy at the cross and who will one day put him into complete subjection. We serve the one, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can't give any more credence to the enemy than what the, lo- the Lord allows him to have. The authority that the spirit of this age has upon the earth is only as much as God has granted to him. And so we've seen this in our studies in Ezra chapter 4, in Ezra chapter 5, and in Ezra chapter 6. They all tell us about these various attempts of Zerubbabel and of Yeshua and the people of God to obediently labor alongside in what God has called them to do in the rebuilding of the altar and the building of the temple. And, and with Ezra in chapters uh, 8 and in chapter 9, I believe it is, in their efforts just to return back to Jerusalem and to bring the law and restore the law back to Jerusalem. And each time along the way, we see opposition and opposition and opposition. And then just remember too, recall that when we studied Ezra chapter four, I taught that day that essentially the entirety of chapter four, the author is giving to us this chronicle, if you will, of about a hundred years of repetitive opposition from the enemy. To what point? Why? Why? To remind us, to remind us, church, be reminded this morning that God's people have always and will always exist and move and advance amongst enemies. That's the truth. As long as we are here on this earth, we live and we move and we advance amongst enemies. But lest we get too weary or lest we lose heart, let's not forget that just as important as remembering is the need for us to find not only resolve, but tremendous faith. And could I even say, church, joy amidst the opposition of our advancing God's kingdom because we are certain that Christ Jesus, through him, the church overcomes and the word of John in the book of Revelation, comes to mind that the church overcomes by what? The blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. The church will overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the word of the testimony. Jesus Christ, the ascended, the all-powerful Lord, he himself has established his church. And because he established his church and not us, the certainty for us is that the gates of hell will not overpower the church. That is the promise to us as his believers this morning. And so this, this is the aim of what I want to get at today, to call us as, as God's people to remember who we are and then 
to labor or to live, if you will, out of that reality. And that is nothing that's deeply profound, but it is easily forgotten from day to day to day, I believe. Who are we? And therefore, how do we live in light of that? And this is really, it's a primary theme that we see woven all throughout Scripture, where God says, this is who you are, and therefore, this is what you do. Where we're thinking about Abraham, or Moses, or David, or the, the various men and women throughout the Old Testament who faithfully were called by God, identified by God, and then called to his work. And of course, all throughout the New Testament, and the pinnacle being Jesus Christ himself. You are my son, the Messiah. And therefore, this is how he lived in light of who he was. And then those of us who've come after and since, with the same recognition that we are new creations, that we are called of God, that we are children of God, and therefore, in light of this identity, in light of this new identity that we have in Christ Jesus, it affects how we then live out and how we labor alongside with Jesus Christ. In the words of Peter, we've shared and read and studied them so often, but it's just so pointed in this regard where Peter says to this, this truth that, that we are and therefore we do, Peter says that you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. What? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. So let's look at me and my, I want to read all of chapter two at this time. I'm going to read from the ESV this morning, beginning in Verse 1, and you can follow along on the monitors as well. In the month of Nisan in the 20th year, the king of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. This is Nehemiah, essentially the first person account of Nehemiah. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber and to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. 
So I went to Jerusalem, and there were three days, and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley of gate, by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. And then I said to them, verse 17, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Father, we receive the, your word this morning with just a, a joy that it is life to our hearts. Father, that it is by your word, it's by the truth of your word, that your spirit brings transformation to us. Lord, I, I pray for just a maturation this morning, a growth in your people in this church. Father, not just for the sake of our own personal fulfillment, Lord, but that we would be the church, that we would be as you have designed us to be, as you have called us to be, that we would be a faithful people, a joyful people, a bold and confident people. We thank you that you're at work in us, Lord, and we thank you that we do not go alone. But Lord, you go before us and you come behind us as well. So we look to you this morning, Lord God, for faith and for hope, for comfort and for boldness. And we do it all for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. So this morning, the, there's much that was just read there in chapter 2. However, I want to focus really the majority of our efforts on the very last portion of chapter 2 and pretty much verses 17 through 20. But just quickly to say, we've talked a little bit about the beginning of chapter 2 thus far. And so essentially this covers, much like some of what we've read, this covers a period of time. And, and again, like Ezra, like we saw with the first and the second wave of returnees back to Jerusalem, there's really not much mention at all of the time period that it would take for Nehemiah to travel from Persia to Jerusalem. So there's, it's a stretch of time here, and we don't know how much time, like I said last week when we just talked about prayer, we don't know how much time necessarily other than what's given here about a four or five month, and then it seems like the Lord answered Nehemiah's prayer or when he launched to go back into Jerusalem, but all, it's just, all that to say is that it's more than just 
this happened and then this happened and this happened and this happened. And then we see here too that Nehemiah has a strategy when he returns to Jerusalem. He's identified already in his heart and his mind a a bit of a strategy, but it's interesting. He's a cupbearer to the king. He's not a civil engineer, but yet he takes it upon himself to be prepared and to ready himself for the work that the Lord Jesus Christ has called him to. And so we've got a bit of this kind of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for when you're just like a covert operation, right, kind of going about in the night. And essentially, he's inspected of what he tells us here about half of the city walls. It's about what he has looked at. And then he presents this plan. And the plan is pretty simple. We're going to rebuild the walls. And it's really the basis of that plan that I want to dig down into and encourage us in today. And just as I begin, I want to say that there's context. Remember the context thus far. That God has been about restoring and preserving the distinctiveness of a people, his people. More specifically, Ezra and Nehemiah have shown us that God is restoring three significant aspects of his people's existence within the world. It's the restoration of the temple through Zerubbabel and Yeshua, which we've already studied. The restoration of the law of God through Ezra, which is, which is the, the standard of living for the people of God, the, the morality or the righteous living for God's people restored through the law. And then here, this is the efforts of Nehemiah, the third restoration, if you will, the distinctiveness of, of, the, of the delineation of God's people from the surrounding world, or perhaps even the consideration of it being um, somewhat of a, of a protection of the church from the surrounding world. So those are the three things. And the significance of this restoration is that in each one of these things, the temple and the law and the walls, they are meant to speak loudly of who God is, how he acts, and how he loves and thinks about his creation. So it wasn't just for the people of God, but it was so that it would speak of who God is. Brothers and sisters, for the church today, that has not changed. Those three aspects are still alive today, and God is still intent on preserving their presence and distinctiveness within the church because it is the distinctiveness of his people. It's what characterizes his people, the temple being their worship, the law being the right and the righteousness of the people of God, and the walls, again, being the delineation of us from the world. Do you not think those are three important things still, aren't they? God is still about keeping them distinct and keeping his church and his people distinct. But just as they're important for the outward of what they speak to the world around, God's affirming both the sacredness and the significance of each distinctive to the people of God as well. And so the question for us, church, which is the same for God's people that Nehemiah poses to them is, how will we respond to the call to engage and to build? How will we respond? Like Nehemiah, today I say to you, to look around, do you see the trouble that the church is in? Look around and see how the world mocks, how the people of God and how God himself suffers derision, how the world mocks God, how the world mocks the church, how it ridicules the church. 
God's people are seen as narrow-minded. They're seen as hypocritical. God's people are seen as being out of touch and old-fashioned, anachronistic. Seeing as being disconnected from modern sensibilities. The church is seen as being unlightened, unenlightened, right? What we believe is baseless oftentimes is the thought towards the church. And these are just to name probably a few, of which there have been many more levied against the church year after year, century after century. But listen, the church has had its hand in its own desecration as well. Capitulating to culture, kowtowing to the world around. Acquiescing, often incapable of standing against the the cultural onslaught because the church has removed from the center the one thing that promises that God has promised to powerfully preserve the church and withstand the present evil age, and that is the power of Jesus Christ as found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oftentimes, the church, whether knowingly or unknowingly, has removed the power of the gospel from the church as it has chosen not to preach the gospel, not to stand on the historic truths of the church, to give itself up to modern sensibilities of culture. The church has made itself weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker. And so then the result that we have is then we have a lukewarm church often. We've got a weakened gospel, which is no gospel at all, right? And we have a culture that's like blood in the water with sharks that looks at the church as just another opportunity to take something down. This is the state, in part. This is the state that the church is in. And we don't have time, but we can go through all the ways that the church is capitulating to culture. Brothers and sisters, hear me this morning. This church will not bend. This church doesn't bend to modern sensibilities. This church doesn't bend to the enlightened mind of present-day culture, because just as there's nothing new in the schemes of the enemy, there's nothing new in the minds of culture. It's just all being recapitulated over and over and over and over again. This church will not bend. We stand on the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We stand boldly in the truth of Scripture. We stand not only unwavering, but unapologetic. I don't apologize for believing what the church has believed historically centuries over centuries, which men and women have died for century after century to maintain. I don't apologize for that. I believe in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as Paul would say in speaking of the surrounding world, he says that Jews demand signs and Greeks demand wisdom. Those were the, those were the pervading uh, uh, cultural tides of Paul's day. The Jews wanted signs and the Greeks, they wanted wisdom. And what does Paul say to the Corinthians? He says, but what church? We preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified at Capital City Church. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Greeks, but to us who are called. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, brothers and sisters. Those words 
ring true today just as they did centuries ago. We preach Christ crucified, the power and the wisdom of God. For Nehemiah, it's, it's not the, the insecurity of their position that the walls being torn and the gates being burned presented. It was the disgrace of the condition of the walls that motivated him to call the people to rebuild. Do you hear me? It was the disgrace of the walls that motivated Nehemiah and the people to build. What will we do today, church? Will we respond to the disgrace at times that the church is within the world? Is that a motivation for us to rise up and build? Do we have confidence in who we are? And do we have conviction for what the church should be in God's eyes? Do we? Is it enough to stand up and say no? Is it enough to resist the cultural tide? Is it enough to say, I had this interesting conversation. I told Shannon, I'll be really honest with you guys. I've been, as you guys know, I've, so I've been getting this tattoo for the last year. And I had the last sitting with this guy. And this guy that did my tattoo is so out there. And he is literally open to anything and everything. And I, as I sat, and I'd sit for like a couple hours at a time, maybe five or six, six seven different times over a year. And I would just listen for ways to talk to this guy. Well, the very last day, he comes up with this question. And there, were, there wasn't a lot of moments with this guy. Had I not just made it on my own. Well, the very last sitting that I'm with him, he, he, out of the blue, he goes, I got this friend of mine that, believes he's, that, that says he's really religious. And he believes the Bible is... Uh, he goes, no, 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 no. He said, do you believe that the Bible... Every word of the Bible is true, or do you believe that it's just like a helpful guideline to live a good life? Out of the blue, that's the question this guy asked me. That, I mean, that's a loaded question. I mean, how do you answer that laying face down on a tattoo table like this, you know? I'm going, well, this is what I, this is what I think. So, you know, we, we just meandered through this conversation that led to all things. And we were talking about aliens. I mean, he went he, and we talked about smoking marijuana. And I mean, literally all because of this question, you know. And, um, and it was just so interesting where I, I found myself comp not, not, listen, not ashamed. But it was like he drilled me that I believed the inerrancy of Scripture from front to back. He could not comprehend that. And this guy's open to everything, but he could not comprehend how I would believe every single word in this book. Brothers and sisters, I gave my best defense that day, which probably could be better if I'm honest with you guys, but I still trust God in the moment. But I stand before you and I say, I believe every single word in this book. Every single solitary word. I believe it for us today. Sorry, that's kind of sidetracked us for a minute. I just had a, a thought. I'm just concerned about the church, you guys. And I've said it before, and I don't want to take too much time today, but I'm concerned. Shannon and I watched the documentary on the guy from Hillsong, Carl Lentz, that Discovery did. And I mean, it's a documentary. It's probably got bias. But listen, the guy did this. The infidelity. 
just the tyranny of this guy in a, in a local church misleading the hearts of thousands, tens of thousands of people. The, the, just the sexual immorality, the greed in this guy's heart. Pride and arrogance. Listen, I, this isn't, I'm not judging the guy. I'm just observing what he was very overtly about in his life. I, this, these things exist within the church, brothers and sisters. What do we do? Do we stand here and just rail against him? No. But what do we do? We establish our own hearts to say, no, this is not the way of the church. This is not the way of God. This is not how the people of God should live. To be so captivated, captivated by money and greed and to have our hearts bound in immorality and impurities. This is not the way of the church, brothers and sisters. To, to abandon the gospel for social causes. That's not the way of the church. Let the scriptures guide the church. Let the scriptures set our foundation. Let, let it be our moral plumb line. Not these people who are going to tell us that we're out of touch. Let's build. Let's build. Let's build. I'm going to move along quickly. Because I, I do have just two things, as I said, they're going to be the foundation for this call for the church to build, for us today to find resolve. And so throughout our study, I just want to recognize really quick that each occurrence throughout Ezra and the beginning of Nehemiah here, as we've seen opposition arise time and time again, it seems to be ratcheting up in its intensity. In the beginning, they're introduced, the opposition is just introduced as advers adversaries, quite simply, in Ezra chapter 4. There's some politicians, a couple of community leaders, people of the land. These are the, these are the people that are identified. And then at some point, it's, it's governors are presented as the opposition. We've got even some marauders, as Ezra, remember, and the Levites are returning back to Jerusalem. It says the good hand of God was on them to keep them from the marauders that would, that would try to attack them. But now what we have here, we've got three, two, two in the beginning of chapter two, and they add a third at the end of chapter 2 here in Nehemiah, there's three individuals, and I just want to quickly point this out because I think it's helpful as, we, again, we consider the church's position in the universe or in, in, in the world today. Well, I guess in the universe is fine as well, but the world will suffice. We have three men, Sanballat the Horonite, quite the name, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab. And so obviously, while much more time could be taken to unpack, I just want to say this. It suffice to say that these, these are not merely three residents of the surrounding lands. These are men of persuasion, and these are men of influence. Sambalat is thought to be a governor of Samaria. Tobiah could also very well be a governor, but it's most, at the very least, he is an Ammonite ruler. And then Geshem was not just a leader of a small tribe. He was a leader of multiple tribes throughout the area of Moab and Edom. And now essentially, if you just put Jerusalem right in the center with the people of God, you essentially have about three quarters of Jerusalem surrounded now by opposition or men who represent the power and the influence of the people groups 
surrounding Jerusalem. This is big-time opposition church. It feels a bit like the church today, doesn't it? Just quite surrounded. Where do we go? Where do we turn to? And so, at times, when the, what I was just talking about of, of the church and the world and the pressure seems to be bearing down on the church from all sides, we have to remember Nehemiah's declaration. It's not about who opposes us, and this is what we'll get into. It's about who empowers us, church. That's where we fix our eyes. That's where we fix our gaze. And I'm sure the people in Ukraine, the believers in Ukraine, are standing on that promise in this moment as well. It's not about who imposes. It's about who empowers. Paul, in Romans, says these words which we know so well that we're not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What is? The gospel is the power of God. We're, it's not that we're not ashamed of the gospel because we know Scripture really well, or we live our life pretty darn good. I'm a pretty good person. No, no. We're not ashamed of the gospel, church, because it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God and to salvation. And then Paul would say, and then Paul's prayer would be to the Ephesians that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power that is towards us who believe. Church, that's my prayer for us today, that we would not only know, but that we would live in this awareness and in the reality of the immeasurable greatness of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ that is for us who believe in him today. May we resolve to build. May we resolve to defend the historical tenets of the faith and to speak only and to preach only the true gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, because that gospel is the gospel that transforms. That gospel is the one that empowers change, real change in the hearts of unbelievers and believers, right? So Nehemiah's appeal to build and the people's boldness to engage is twofold, and this is where I want to land with us today. In his call for engagement, he appeals to two significant truths, truths which I appeal to us today as well. They are in this order. He first appeals to the good hand of God or the hand of God upon him for good in verse 18. And then he appeals to their identity as quote-unquote servants, which is the Hebrew word meaning worshipers of God in verse 20. Those two things. He appeals to the truth of the hand of God upon him for good and their identity as servants or worshipers of God. Church, these are powerful realities in that they're both undeniable and they are irrevocable. Why? Because they come from God, not from us. It is God who has established his church. It's God who, who speaks of our identity, and it is God who empowers his church. Those truths are irrevocable because you had no hand in gaining any of them. Mm -hmm. 
For the people of God, it was their believing on the supreme power of God and the remembrance of the promise of God that they are his treasured possession that formed the basis for their response. Let us build. And today, church, God is no less powerful and we are no less his people, right? He is the same today as he was then. Both truths remain in place, and we are to live not just in a belief of their existence, but in the boldness and the confidence of their present reality for our life. So as to the first, the good hand of God, Nehemiah's first appeal comes in the form of remembering, uh, recounting how the mighty hand of God had been present in bringing him to Jerusalem. And he says in verse 18, and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. This is now, he's, he's done everything. He's prayed. He's gone to the king. The king has sent him. He did a bit of his, uh, of his covert um, of planning and preparation, not telling a soul. And now he comes and he says this very simply, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. Everything that God had done in the year almost prior to that, how he labored in prayer faithfully month after month, how he went boldly to the king and asked specifically for something that seemed to be way far out of reach and how the Lord led him and gave him favor with the people, uh, uh, with the king and, and to send before him emissaries. And to preserve him on his journey back, those are the things he recounted the faithfulness of God, brothers and sisters. The good hand of God. And then it says, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. So he's got this order. He recognized that everything that had happened, how easily it could have been, he could have just, man, I asked the king and he said, yes. Can you believe that? He gave me two months off with pay. And so I'm here for a little bit. No, he understood it was the sovereign hand of God that had moved the king's heart. And he encouraged the people of God with that truth. We've seen this statement, the good hand of God, before multiple times in both Nehemiah and Ezra. It's an expression that brings with it the understanding of the strong hand of God acting in favor towards his people. The strong hand of God acting in favor towards his people. See, for Nehemiah, it was the favor of God in verse 8 that persuaded the king of Persia to grant him his request. For Ezra, he too understood that it was the hand of God that brought him to Jerusalem and preserved him on the journey. This idea of, of God's hand moving on behalf of his people is a well-known expression all throughout the Old Testament, but it continues on into the new as well. In Psalm 89, verse 13 through 17, let me read it to you. The psalmist declares, you have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted for what? In verse 17, for you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. See, the people of the Old Testament, 
They knew that it was the hand of God that delivered. It was the hand of God that saved. The hand of God that preserved, that provided, that moved mightily against adversaries. It was the hand of God that established and sustained his people. God's people knew that his hand was synonymous with his power and his might and his care. They knew that. The people of Israel knew that. So when Nehemiah says to them, it was the good hand of God. Brothers and sisters, you have to bet they knew what that meant. God was moving things on their behalf mightily. But it's not just an Old Testament theme, as I said. Acts 11, it was the hand of the Lord upon his church in Antioch by which a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Acts 11 records for us. Also in Acts, it was the hand of God that would determine the course for his people according to whatever his hand had planned and predestined, are the words that Luke records. And perhaps the more powerful is the picture that Jesus' own words give to us of the strength of God's hand to keep and to preserve his people in John 10. When Jesus, speaking to the Jews, he says this, that my sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Brothers and sisters, do you know the good hand of God that's towards his church? What's more, do you believe in the good hand of God that is acting on behalf of his will and plan to bring about what he desires? Isaiah 54 famously says that no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. Not that it wouldn't be seen, that a, that a weapon wouldn't be reared, or perhaps that a weapon wouldn't be inflicted, it says that no weapon will succeed. Ultimately, church, nothing can come against the church. Nothing will overcome the church. I love the song we sing, no power of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck me from his hand. What a truth to remind our hearts today. May we learn to rest and take comfort in the good hand of our God. And number two, God's chosen people. The second appeal that he made was the, the, found in the confession of, of, chapter, of verse 20 in chapter two, that the God of heaven will make us prosper. There's that good hand of God. The God of heaven will make us prosper. And then he says, and we his servants will arise and build. See, they knew who they were and they acted accordingly. They understood that they were the servants of God, worshipers of Yahweh. And the word here for servant in Nehemiah 2 is the same that I just read from Isaiah 54. The heritage of God's worshipers is that no weapon formed nor any tongue that is fashioned against the Lord's people will succeed. That's the heritage of the Lord's people. Is that a promise or what? Last week I talked about Praying the promises of God with persistency and impatience. 
That is a promise that you can pray. The understanding that identity fuels action, as I've said a moment ago, is one that's well represented all throughout Scripture, particularly in the New Testament. Paul will drill into this in Colossians when he talks about the new man and the old man. This idea that who you are, it therefore informs what you do. In Colossians, he says that you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So there's the statement of identity now. And just take this in for yourself this morning. You have died and your life is hidden in Christ with God. Therefore, put to death what is earthly in you, Paul says. And he says, put on as God's chosen ones. And he gives this list, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, patience, etc., etc. This is who you are. Therefore, this is what you do. In other words, church, I love this. Rick said this. I can't remember what you were teaching, but you just made the statement, be who you are. I love that statement. Be who you are. It begins with us. Personal renewal, patterns of righteousness and holiness in our life. Be who you are individually so that the church can be who she is within the city. For Nehemiah and the people of Israel, that reality was that they knew who they were. They identified with those who were present at Sinai the day that the Lord made his oath with Israel. I guarantee you they remembered those truths. They know that they were those who were declared as a people for his treasured possession. Those whom the Lord had set his love upon or whom the Lord loved and is bringing and keeping an oath that he swore to their fathers. That the Lord had brought them out with a mighty hand and redeemed them from the house of slavery. That's the promise to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy. Church, let's settle these issues of our identity today. Know who you are. Know who you are. You do this at night. Let that seep into your brain. I can usually put it right here. Know who you are so that we can live as we ought to live, right? This is my prayer for us.